Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. It's impossible not to cheer at a one in a million shot, whether it's an ace from across the green or a game-winning half-court basket right at the buzzer, people love a long shot. Well, most people. You see, a few soldiers in Battery B, 1st Rhode Island Light Artillery during the Civil War, weren't huge fans of a particular hole-in-one. They were in Pennsylvania in early July, 1863, to take on the Confederates at the Battle of Gettysburg. General Robert E. Lee and his Army of Northern Virginia had already defeated the Army of the Potomac at the Battle of Chancellorsville months earlier. Lee then started moving north from Fredericksburg, Virginia, with 75,000 men in tow. They were feeling pretty good, ready to take over the Northern Territory. Meanwhile, Major General Joseph Hooker and the Union side was also heading north, but he wasn't so keen to take on Lee again. He was still reeling from his defeat at Chancellorsville. President Lincoln refused to let Hooker carry on in command of the Army of the Potomac. He put Major General George Meade in charge instead, who took control of the 90,000-strong army and moved them northward. They had one goal, keep Lee out of the nation's capital of Washington, D.C. Meade, however, wasn't going to just act as a roadblock to the Confederacy. He also wanted to take down his rival. By the end of June, General Lee had already made it to Pennsylvania. His spy, General Jeb Stuart, let him know that Union troops were close behind, so Lee packed up and headed toward Gettysburg. The battle kicked off early on the morning of July 1st, as Confederate Major General Henry Heth took the Union cavalry while on his way to Gettysburg for supplies. Pretty soon, reinforcements on both sides arrived, and the fight was officially underway. 30,000 Confederates against 20,000 Union troops. Union soldiers retreated towards Cemetery Hill in the south, where they took up a fortified position. The next day, General Lee sent Lieutenant General James Longstreet to take on the Union's left flank, while various landmarks in and around Gettysburg became blood-soaked battlegrounds. But the Union held firm against the Confederate traitors, staving off a Southern victory for one more day, although the final day of the battle would become the most crucial of all, and the most bizarre. You see, on July 3rd, Lee picked up the fight at Culp's Hill, where Meade's men were trying to take back the ground they had lost the day before. Smoke and the smell of gunpowder filled the air as the blue and gray went head-to-head. Bayonets pierced flesh while musket balls and bullets found their marks, or wound up in nearby tree trunks, and cannons let fly with grapefruit-sized balls of bronze and iron. It was one of these cannonballs that did something unexpected. As Private Alfred Gardner of Battery B, 1st Rhode Island Light Artillery, was reloading his cannon, an enemy shell struck it, killing both Gardner and Private William Jones. And not only were the two men killed in the blast, but the impact also dented the cannon's muzzle. Sergeant Albert Strait had been behind it, waiting to fire it when it happened. He hurried around to the front in an attempt to reload it himself, but quickly realized that the cannon wasn't just damaged. It was burning hot. It seems that when the enemy shell had struck the muzzle, it caused the barrel to rapidly heat up. And as Strait tried to push the new melon-sized 12-pound cannonball down its shaft, the heavy sphere melded with the metal. He tried everything to get it to go in, including hitting it with an axe and then a hammer, 
but the shell refused to budge. It was now a part of the cannon. Luckily, this one cannon was not meant to decide the fate of the Battle of Gettysburg. Union forces successfully defeated the Confederates and eventually went on to win the war, but the cannon remained unaltered. Today, the Gettysburg Gun, as it's now called, now resides in the Rhode Island State House, where visitors can see it on full display. It still bears the axe marks made by Sergeant Strait, as well as the dent in the muzzle. And the cannonball is still there too. Just don't try to fire it, unless you want to end up looking like Yosemite Sam in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Politics can be tough for even the most seasoned veteran. It's a nasty business, with mud flying in both directions, sordid pasts coming to light, and heated debates that can quickly turn ugly. People enter politics for a number of reasons, such as helping their community, gaining power over others, or even just to get rich. Money doesn't just talk in Washington. It screams. But before they became senators or members of Congress, many politicians got their start at the local level, as representatives in towns and cities where they could, hopefully, do the most good. And not just in America, but all over the world. In fact, in one small town in Ecuador, two mayoral candidates went up against a third-party choice who had come out of nowhere, a candidate who had swept everybody in town off their feet. It was 1967, and a small Ecuadorian village was facing a dilemma. It was called Picoasa, a parish near the Pacific coast. Today, it's known as a prominent historical site, home to several archaeological discoveries, including an ancient settlement dating back to before Christopher Columbus was even born. Unfortunately, Picoasa was also an impoverished area that lacked many of the basic necessities its residents needed to thrive, including clean drinking water and a proper sewage system. But 1967 marked a time of change in the town. They were electing a new mayor that year, one who would hopefully usher in a new era of success and prosperity for the people who lived there. The voters, on the other hand, felt differently. It seemed that no such person existed. It's hard to know why they didn't vote for one of the two main candidates who had been vying for the position, but one must assume that people just didn't like them. Maybe it was their policies, or perhaps they simply didn't understand the plight of the Picoasan people. Whatever the case, the citizens drifted toward a third contender, a newcomer who entered the mayoral race late in the game. His name was Pulvapis. He was new to the political scene and decided to get his feet wet in this local election. He started by distributing literature throughout the town, such as leaflets and flyers, and they bore the slogan, vote for any candidate, but if you want well-being and hygiene, vote for Pulvapis. It was an odd message for someone running for mayor, but it made an impact on the people. They bought into the straightforward and wholesome nature of his campaign. This wasn't someone looking to drag others down to get ahead. Pulvapis only cared about the voters and their well-being. And it worked. Come election day, the people of Picoasa knew who they wanted to be their new mayor. But there was just one problem. He wasn't on the ballot. But as anyone who has participated in a democratic election would tell you, that wasn't the end of the story for Pulvapis. Rather than default to one of the other two candidates, voters began to fill in this dark horse's name as a write-in choice. One by one, the Picoasans added Pulvapi's name to the ballots, and when the election had ended, the votes were tallied up and the winner was declared. There was no denying it, Pulvapis had been elected mayor of Picoasa. Unfortunately, he was unable to fill the position. 
Despite fighting a clean and hard-won campaign, Polvapes was not eligible to serve as the town's mayor because he was not a person. He was a foot powder. You see, during the election cycle, the company that made Polvapes started advertising in the town, and their efforts bore a striking resemblance to an actual political campaign. It was enough to influence the local population into ignoring the two actual human being candidates and write in their foot powder instead. We don't know if Pulvapi's success led to an increase in sales of the product, but it's clear that when voters are unhappy with the choices they're given, they won't settle for anything less. They'll think on their feet and look for a better option. One who cares about the people, heart and soul. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.